Just as a disclaimer, we want you to know that some of the movies that we will be reviewing were shot in a different time and era where people of race and sex were not treated equally. We understand this and hope you do too. The movies or anything that happened on the sets are not the views of this podcast or what this show is intended to be all about. Exactly. And we want to give due diligence in presenting the movie and not the views of the cast or directors or anyone involved. But we also feel it's necessary to let the audience know some of the background information to get a feel for what was happening at the time of shooting the film. Again, we hope you understand that we do not agree with everything that went on and we just want to give out the information. And with that being said, hope you enjoy the show. Alexander, he couldn't be elected dog catcher. I'm going to skin Mr. Charles Foster Kane alive. I'm going to marry him next week. 
at the White House. Emily, I hear you've been stepping out with Charlie Kane. Of course I love him. I gave him $60 million. Well, of course I love him. He's the richest man in America. But all the girls say about him at first. But you know, I can't help but admire him. He's crazy. He's wonderful. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know what you'll think about Mr. Kane. I can't imagine. You see, I play the part myself. Well, Kane is a hero and a scoundrel. A no-account and a swell guy, a great lover, a great American citizen, and a dirty dog. It depends on who's talking about him. What's the real truth about Charles Foster Kane? I wish you'd come to this theater when Citizen Kane plays here and decide for yourself. Alright guys, welcome back to the Tragedy of Cinema podcast. I'm your host Jimbo and my co-host as usual is... The Tired Terrence. <laughs> the TT, we're going to call <laughs> it. Um, you have reached episode number 40, where we'll be discussing today what many consider to be the greatest movie of all time on several lists, almost any list you look up, awards, uh, Citizen Kane. As a matter of fact, this is the movie of why this podcast was started. Because I had never seen it until now, I've tried and tried and tried to get through this movie. Multiple if you can make occasions. it, if you if you <laughs> yeah, if you make it through the first ten minutes, it, it's a totally different movie. It picks up, and we'll we'll, we'll talk about yeah. it. Um, just to get, just to give some perspective, like off off mic, there's been many times where we were uh, preparing for other movies, and then uh, I'll just be sitting here, and Jimbo will just be like. I, I still haven't got to the beginning of Citizen <laughs> I said, Kane. I know I need to watch it. I said, we've said we're going to do Citizen Kane a lot of times. I said, I've tried, I said, and I stopped. I tried, and I stopped. But if you stick with it, it's well worth the payout Absolutely. at the end. Yeah. Uh, it makes you think a lot. Oh, yeah. Um, but first, I bought a little box of movie trivia questions, so we're going to put Terrence on the spot. So, Terrence, we all know that Mike Myers did the voice of Shrek. Yes. But who was the original voice of Shrek before his untimely death in 1997, where Mike Myers had to come in and re-record the lines? I don't remember. I I know that happened. I don't know who he replaced. Chris Farley. So Chris Farley was going to be Shrek until his untimely death, R.A.P., Uh, but that could have been a funny movie too. Oh, it would have <laughs> you been know, hilarious, absolutely. And if they would have made David Spade as the donkey, you know, because they were in all those movies together. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So this movie has so much information, so many theories, so many explanations, so many opinions, so many technical stuff. This is going to be a longer episode, but we cut a lot of stuff out too. Yeah. So, and I have a theory at the end of this movie. Um, it explains what what it is. It's pretty black and white with that, right? But people have driven it all over the world. Yeah, you know, all all these different places they go with these theories and this and oh, that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But I know I think I got the deeper meaning of what it was meant to be. And gotcha. I'll explain it to you at the very end. And because I'll, I'll give my take on it. Apparently too, Terrence yeah. will be like, eh, it was okay. No. <laughs> <laughs> so Terrence, let's go ahead and take it away. Episode forty, Citizen Kane. So as I go through these, uh, I'm just going to throw in little tidbits of information because I actually took notes. I know. I, I, he actually researched. And I was like, he's not on his phone. Not I'm, like on the last minute. Not like when I we're sitting here getting ready to record. He's on his phone. Let me look this up. Real quick. I was like, okay. So he actually did something. We'll see how he did. All right. So uh, Citizen Kane, release date, September 5th, 1941. Uh, so 
just the time of uh, 1941. So the 1930s and 40s were known as the golden age of film. And uh, what I then just to give you an idea of why it's considered the golden age of film, uh, Citizen Kane came out during this time. Was it of Oz, Casablanca, Gone with the Wind, Grapes of Wrath, uh, Babes in Arms, The Philadelphia Story, Mutiny on the Bounty. It, the list goes on. And that's why it's known as the golden age of movies. A lot of great movies um, in there, too. And uh, this particular film uh, was uh, made under uh, RKO Studios. Um, now, this Out is of also... nowhere, RKO New York. <laughs> exactly. <No. laughs> so um, RKO consisted of uh, the big five. Uh, during the 1930s and 1940s, there were five major studios, that being uh, Metro, uh, Gold, Waymire, Paramount, Fox Film Corp, Warner Brothers, and then RKO. And then there's three smaller ones that kind of just hung by a thread, which was Universal Pictures, United Artists, and Columbia. Um, and they controlled 95% of entertainment that was distributed in uh, the film industry that was uh, distributed uh, within the U.S. So it was very interesting that they created this uh, uh, oligopoly. Um so I just wanted like to put that out there because that was just really interesting as I was like looking up all the stuff for Citizen Kane. Um, that like you know the 1930s, 1940s. Obviously, we've covered a couple of these movies already that were within the golden age era. And I just wanted to to point out that like yeah, the 1930s, 1940s was known as the golden age of films, and these were some of the studios behind it. And well, everything. and I I also think it's when they were trans. Uh, what, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, going from silent movies to oh, more. Yeah speaking roles in yep. films. So I think that's a big part of it, too. And speaking of which, it was actually... Um, I believe it was uh, the Metro uh, Goldway Meyer that actually... Uh, they were one of the bigger purveyors of silent films. Uh, and that was their forte before they moved over to uh, movies. You know, that uh, that spoke. <laughs> Talkies. Talkies. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so... Uh, the budget of this film was $839,000, uh, which equates to about $14.6 million uh, today. So, very low budget movie. Um, that's that's what uh, the biggest thing to understand and take away from this is. Well, but back then. It was pretty it low budget. pretty big budget. It, it, it was considered low budget back then, too. Man. Yeah, I mean, if, if, if especially if we like, if we were to pull up some old notes and like look at like this compared to the spending of like Wizard of Oz. Let me look. I'll look while you're doing that. So like, yeah, look up Wizard of Oz because that would be like probably the biggest one in this time, right? Um, so yeah, they only had eight hundred thirty nine thousand to work with. Uh, in the box office, it made one point six million. Um, and if you account for inflation today, that would be twenty-seven point nine million. Now, even though it's, uh, it was basically more or less considered a box office flop, and it actually wasn't until the nineteen fifties that this movie would actually be recognized as one of the greatest. And how that happened was uh, during the fifties, uh, film directors. And artists were starting to be recognized and getting really popular. Uh, so, you know, the U.S., you know, kind of looking into what the French were looking at, um, realized that Citizen Kane was really popular amongst, mm -hmm. uh, you know, French directors, and they all highly, like, revered it. And so um, 
it garnered a second release in the 1950s. And during that second release is when it gained popularity. Uh, but this is also when you start getting uh, people looking deeper in the films and doing like film analysis and stuff like that. Right. But the um, William Randolph Hearst, who basically... Yep, that was him, gonna be him, my next him, thing. Yeah. Well, I'm saying due to this, him and Orson Welles, this is basically a jab at him. Him and Orson Welles did not like each other. And this is basically William Randolph Hearst's life. Yeah. Uh, a lot of similarities, things that happen in his life, they may be tweaked a little bit, but the reason, like, like we'll, we'll find out when we get to the awards that he had such a control over, uh, I, did he run like the New Yorker? He ran so, some of those So this is what he right? ran, to, to give you a little background on William Randolph Hearst, he was the first quote-unquote like big media, because uh, during the 1930s, 1940s, like newspaper still wasn't like a big massively distributed thing so he created the first uh i, I forgot what the, the 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 company he owned but he more or less controlled the news whatever he said that's what people were going to eat up and he really kind of swayed people's which they call things. the inquirer in exactly. and kane and so um because he had this giant control he also had this pull of like um when this before this film came out, uh, he was able to push the date back that it came out. He was able to lock it out of certain theaters it was supposed to open up right. in, uh, because he was like, "This is you, you're 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 taking jabs at me." And then Orson Welles was like, "No, we're, we're totally not." But it's really hard to make that argument when there's so, so many much similarities. <laughs> I think he um, was technically, but <laughs> and then uh, the only the only one that like would sound fair is um he also said uh william randolph hearst uh said that uh one of the 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 character another character was based off his mistress mm-hmm. um marion davies yeah, ma- is, yeah. is and susan alexander in the movie exactly uh, who was the in the movie you know a failed opera singer but right. the reason why that one seems like a stretch is because his mistress was actually a pretty famous actress and she was good at what she did right but what I was getting to with William Randolph, he had such power over the public that for the nine nominations that it was nominated for for the Oscars, they booed every time it was announced. Yeah. And I think that's unprecedented. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. And I think I think it was due to the media of him, you know, the he control that, that he had the over the media. Place. Right. Like he, he tried to blackmail RKO Productions. He, uh, he, he tried every which way to get them not to release this film. Mm-hmm. Um, now, he did succeed in, like, postponing it, uh, but he didn't succeed in you know, uh, preventing its release. So it, it came out and, and that's actually part of, uh, you know, when you get into deep discussions about Citizen Kane, that's part of, um, you know, a lot of people say, uh, they can kind of attribute it being popular to the drama it was connected to. Um, cause it, you know, maybe it wouldn't have got as much of a spotlight if it didn't have all this drama connected to behind it, particularly with someone as big as William Randolph Hearst. Right. And the budget for Wizard of Oz was $2.77 million, so it was roughly a third of the budget of Wizard of Oz. Yeah. So, there you go. So, obviously, directed by Orson Welles. <laughs> um, writing credits goes to uh, Herman J. Uh, ooh, I'm going to butcher that last No, no. Like, it's funny because usually I'll look at them before you and know be like, I'll nail it and be like, okay, cool, I know how to say this. This one, I looked at it before and I'm like, no, I'm just going to butcher it. The greatest movie of all time deserves the greatest butcher of all time, right? <laughs> so Herman J. Menquiskitz. Uh, no, that's not it. Menquiskitz. It's it. This one's wild. Um, <laughs> uh, Orson Welles, obviously. Um, John uh, Houseman. <laughs> Roger Q. Denny and Molly Kent. Um, and another person I wanted to give a shout out to as far as, uh, you know, the technical uh, 
uh, credits uh, that we're giving. And um, that would absolutely be uh, Greg Tolan. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really think a lot of the the film's popularity and sort of you know greatness that people attributed to it. Now, obviously, you know Orson Welles did write this, um, and the writing is good, uh, but it's the cinematography is also groundbreaking, very groundbreaking, mm-hmm. especially for the time. So uh, I, I really think a lot of uh, its movie's greatness is attributed to Greg Tolan, and I think people don't talk about him enough when they talk about you know citizen kane i think he should be you know the citizen kane two two names should at least pop in your head orson wells greg tolan and you know greg tolan actually had a cameo in this movie too did he now? yeah he, he he makes an appearance in an uh, as an interviewer depicting the part of the news of the march newsreel that you see in there so That's i thought hilarious. that was pretty cool too <laughs> so um now that we're getting into the technical spe- uh, technical specs we're looking at a runtime of about an hour and 59 minutes uh Really, it picks up like we were talking about earlier. If you could survive that first, first 10, like minutes, 10 minutes, because uh, for those of you that haven't seen it, the first 10 minutes is you watching a film of guys watching a film. Yeah. That's the way I can say it, because you're like, this is just like, it's like an old-timey movie, like it's showing up like in 1927, and it shows yep. sometime, and then it, it shows like a little something, like, like, like building a Xanadu and all this. And I'm like, I'm like and... what is, like <laughs> Citizen Kane does this, Kane does that, and you're like, what is going on? And then the lights dim down, and you see these guys sitting in this theater. Yeah. And then you're like, oh, and they're like, well, we want to know what this means, but you know, and that's what After, it picks of course, up. The iconic opening of just you know him dying and going <laughs> rosebud, <laughs> right? Um, the sound mix was in mono. Uh, that's RCA sound system. Um, uh, this is a black and white film. Its aspect ratio is one point three seven by one. Uh, it was filmed using a camera Mitchell BNC. Uh, uh, Cookie Speed, uh, Parancho, and Astro Berlin Pam uh, uh, Thatcher lenses. So now I'm going to take a little deep dive into the lenses because this is one of the big things that was in the movie. And one of them is the deep focus lens. Um, they're one of the very few movies to use a deep focus lens during this time. And absolutely one of the movies that put using a deep focus lens on the map in a very artistic manner and so what a deep focus lens is is oh man oh, Terrence now, Shane, now i'm Shane, the one Shane, who Shane. hasn't silent his phone it's bound to happen 40 episodes you're one of those guys in the go. movie theater too aren't you that just rings hey, and all that i i am this is my first uh, uh, my first uh, strike second what was the first? I've, I've had another one. Oh, yeah. Go back and listen to your episodes. <laughs> oh, maybe I had one. Yeah, you had a couple. Um, so back to the deep focus lens. Uh, basically, it makes everything in focus. Um, usually, typically, uh, in films of, of around this time, you'll get either the background or the foreground in focus while everything's kind of blurred. Or if they want everything in focus, they had to film uh, multiple times in order to and then splice them together to get more of a focus on everything so uh, this is the first time that they used a deep focus and it really shows up uh the first thing that you really notice it is when you have a young uh charlie uh kane out playing in the snow and the camera backs up and you see you know his mother and she's talking to uh the um uh, you know the big rich gentleman and you can still see him clearly in the back as it's panning out and everything's clear in focus and where it really really shows and this is where i think it's really cool is uh they also mess with the uh sort of how the audience perceives the scene mm-hmm. uh versus uh how things actually are so it's a little bit of 
um, you know, visual trickery. And uh, that scene would be when they're in um, Thatcher's office when he's signing away his company. Mm-hmm. Uh, after he signs it, he walks away. And then it, at first it looks like a regular office. But as he walks away, you realize that the windows, they're huge. And they're like six feet up in the air. Mm-hmm. And it also has sort of, it's also sort of a metaphor for how he's feeling. I mean, here he went owning one of the biggest newspaper companies to sign it away and then now feeling small. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was another really good use of the deep focus lens. Um, another thing that he did which was super cool which uh as you're watching the film you'll notice you see a lot of ceilings in mm-hmm. shots which during this time not common at all because typically you'll have your mics other uh, setups in the ceiling stuff like that so it was very very it was you wouldn't see ceilings in mm-hmm. film um what orson wells did he would actually dig holes around the set to get really low shots and he hid all the mics and everything else behind uh, um like these special sheets that would hide everything. And so you get a lot of uh, these sheets, or I'm sorry, you get a lot of these shots that are done from a low angle, um, making everybody seem like tall and giving these really, really unique shots uh, as they're talking and everything, which is really cool. Right, and something I was going to bring up, there's two two specific scenes since you said that. Yeah. Um, one is when they're going to, I can't think of the name of the, the place where the lady was the singer at the lounge or whatever. And it comes in from the the top. Remember, you see the camera coming from oh, the yeah. top, and it yeah. goes down through the skylight, and it goes right through that sign. Well, what he did is that that they had to get that camera through there, so they made the sign where it would pull apart. That so was when the camera, yeah, cover. when the Next, camera came absolutely. through, yeah. it pulled apart. The same scene where uh, his mom at the table, yep. when he's in back, they actually pulled the table apart, but it was so well timed and everything just to get that big camera through there that it just looks like one continuous absolutely. shot. Absolutely. So. And, one more thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, go ahead. But, but something else I was reading is that this was one of the first movies that actually used something in the forefront, something here, and something in the background and shot mm-hmm. all at the same time. So same it gave time. it like that three-dimensional effect. Exactly. So, uh, And he, he accomplished this through mechanical sets, uh, which right. allowed the camera to have those continuous scenes. And um, like the sign, like the table. And if well, you notice, uh, it's it's very slight. But with the table, you can actually see, notice right. the hat. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I was going to say. Yeah. And so um, now what this does is it doesn't mess with the mise-en-scene of, of the shot. Uh, mise-en-scene being um, the arrangement, how everything appears, and the framing of a shot. So, you, you know, your actors, your lighting, decor, props, costumes, so on and so forth. So uh, typically you wouldn't be able to pull off a shot like this without messing with that mise-en-scene, you know, moving stuff or being having things arranged in a way where things wouldn't be in the way. But because they use mechanical sets, they were able to make that whole panning shot and then make it seem like they're going over all of that stuff. Uh, let's see what else I have here. I have so many notes on like the I can't the believe it. You stuff. guys, yeah. I might have to take a picture and post this. <laughs> this is amazing. I, I covered mechanical stuff. Um... And then oh, I covered that. Yep, yep. Uh, and then the last one, uh, which is really cool, is because this was low budget, there was a lot of shots they were they weren't able to obtain. So what they did was they used matte drawings using uh, optical printers. So good to uh, get these shots. And what uh, how they're messing with lighting and these matte drawings. So the outside of the inquire the. Um, a lot of the shots of the outside of uh, Xanadu. 
um, you know, his last place of rest and it's like a gigantic zoo. Like, yeah, it's like and this all, crazy place he built. Uh, uh, also, the audience when he's giving a speech, which uh, is also unique because what they did with that one to make it look like people were moving and whatnot is they poked a bunch of little tiny holes and they they would shine a light in a way that made it look like people were moving, clapping and all, exactly right? and clapping. So. All those were uh, matte drawings. None of those were real, which is really cool. Um, uh, one thing that Orson Welles said that the biggest regret he hated the fact that um, you know where, Char- where he was a young kid, Charlie was a young kid outside in the snow, you know, throwing snowballs. Yeah. He said the one thing that he regretted is that um, it was a fake set, so he couldn't get the breath of the characters oh, breathing yeah. in the snow. Yeah. So he's like, he hated that scene so much. He's like, that's the one thing that drove him. Mad, you know. <laughs> to just be like, oh, I wish I could have did that. Yeah. Right. But, um, th- there is definitely things that you end up not being able to do uh, due to the constrictions of budget and whatnot. And um, I think that pretty much covers like all the stuff that uh, I wanted to dive into, like technical-wise. Uh, a lot of the cinematography, uh, things that they pulled off. Um, and uh, the reason why this happened and how... Uh, how he was able to do this and this was very very rare when RKO uh, decided to back him for this movie they gave him complete creative control Mm -hmm. that never never happened Mm -hmm. so uh, because he had complete creative control he brought in everybody from his old troupe of um, I believe it was the Mercury Theater Group and so uh, you know they did stage plays and whatnot. so he pulled all the actors from his old theater troupe and he brought those actors into film. So none of the none of these guys have done film before. But that's not to say they're not seasonal actors because they were all very good uh, stage play actors. Um, but these a lot of the actors in this film first time on the silver screen. And 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 that's what he wanted. He wanted exactly. a lot of people that didn't have acting experience. Um, the oh, there well, was only they all one had acting experience, right. But, but I mean, they were new like to movies, movie acting. Yeah. But like the one person that he he didn't uh, like casting was um, you remember where uh, the waiter where she's in there crying when oh, she finds out yeah, yeah, the yeah, waiter yeah. he was already been cast in a lot of movies as a waiter gotcha. and he was like he was kind of disappointed that hey I couldn't get anybody yeah know. but the um, the one thing I think that makes this movie work and you can tell. Is like the Wizard of Oz had five different uh, directors. Remember that they had yep. five directors, and I th- even think Gone with Wind had at least two yep. because they were pulling them from the Wizard of Oz. This one, I think, is just the one guy, or maybe even Orson Welles and and uh, one other guy. But I'm just saying, you can see his vision all the way through. Oh yeah. So where where uh, you know uh, Greg Tolan did do a lot of the cinematography for free work, uh, a lot of the ideas of shots were still Wells. So, right. So uh, a lot of the vision. Um, and you know what panned out into this movie was a lot of Wells. I mean, he was very much the sole director of the movie. Um, you know, obviously the writing credits goes to a handful of people, but as far as like directing, um, he was the sole director of this movie uh, because he ha- did have full creative control. And so they, you know, like you were saying, the other movies they had multiple directors, and you can kind of see the uh, control that the studios would sort of implement by doing that. Right. The, the one thing about this um, that I don't think you really touched on a lot, but was the lighting. The oh, use yeah. of lighting and sh- uh, shadows was bar none Absolutely. because you couldn't even make out facial features. And I love that because, um, and I bet you didn't know this either, but you know, when the, the when they're in the shadows, after that first 10 minutes and the sh- yeah. people that are in that theater, 
those are all played by the main characters for the rest of the cast. Orson Welles is in there. Yep. Um, they're all right there, but you never know because you don't see, you their, don't faces. see their faces. It's all blackened out. And it, it's just, it's not blacked out. It's the shadow. They're in darkness. And it was Absolutely. perfectly well and then, done. And they switch over from dark to light very well. And they also use it uh, in a couple of scenes as almost like a metaphor. And one of my favorites being when, um, uh, his, him and his second wife are, are in the, um, inside Xanadu. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, th- I think this is after he, he ends up slapping her mm-hmm. and um, there's a scene where he's he's towering over her and uh, it just the, the not only is she because she's on the ground with you know her, her right, uh, puzzle. jigsaw puzzle um, but as like he's walking towards her and uh, uh, you not only feel this like towering presence over her but the shadow just cast it over mm-hmm. her of like it really just shows that metaphor of like he is controlling every aspect of her life and what she does. Um, and that, that was, this was another use of the uh, deep focus shot too, is when he walks away from her or when he first enters walks the room her, yeah. and he, he walks to his chair and he's like, I want to take you on a picnic, but they're so distant and far apart, but they're both in focus. And it's also almost this metaphor of how distant they are at this point in their relationship. <sighs> Another great scene uh, dealing with that is when him and his first wife are sitting at that table. Remember, and she's like, he's like, well, I got to go to, they're just married. And he's like, well, I got to go to the newspaper. And she's yep. like, okay, I'll see you later. And then, it, like, time passes and the age progression on both of them, like her hair's changing yep. and, and all that. And he's getting older. Well done. Well done. Here's a, Okay, so here's a fun fact. Obviously, in today's age, we are used to lots of montages scenes and all different aspects and genres of movies during the 1930s and 40s montages weren't you they, they weren't done very much like mm-hmm. they were maybe done once or twice before this movie so uh this movie explored a lot of different ways of storytelling that wasn't done so it was unique and new and um that shot in particular was was uh amazing back then uh because you just didn't see it and that's this whole they're sitting at the table and time is progressing and you're just seeing like their relationship deteriorate more or less mm-hmm. um so yeah thanks for bringing that up that, that was that was another very unique thing that uh, uh they accomplished cinematography wise while filming this movie right so now, finally moving on to the last of the technical specs. There was a lot to say a, technically yeah. about this movie. There's a lot to because, say, period, <laughs> exactly. about this movie. Um, but I wanted to cover some of the bigger ones. Uh, some other stuff will be covered, you know, when we go right, over right. Our, our regular stuff. But I, I definitely wanted to get uh, talk about that uh, during the technical uh, Well, I think, I think that that's what the, the drive of this movie. Um, let's face it, it's not a lot of great acting. You know, Orson Welles does good. Yeah. Um, some of the, the like his, uh, what's his, I don't want to say his henchman, but what's the guy, like his servant, the guy that's just crazy. He's oh, funny. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. when he like falls off the way, all his luggage falls <laughs> off while he's just sitting there like, uh. But uh, the, the the lighting, man, I'm telling you, the, the shadows in this movie is something that I have, I don't think I've seen in a movie in a long time. Uh, maybe ever. No. Um, but, and I don't think I've seen one since. Uh, there are still. Hitchcock some... does a little bit of it. He does, yeah. But not to this degree. Uh, no, he he definitely really really uh, played a lot with light right. in this movie. Um, where I, I think if you when it is used uh, nowadays, it's usually used very uh, um, conservatively. Like it's only in a couple shots, and typically it's almost this to depict uh, just kind of simple 
messages like you'll get this good and evil kind of thing where like whoever the the hero will be bathed in light and the the and then when they pan over to the villain you know he's all you know in shadow and these are like some of the small things that are accomplished with light today but aren't really used to the degree of of it is now and it maybe it is and maybe i just haven't caught it but it's very obvious in this film right but i think that's the draw for me for this movie is why i enjoyed it more than i thought i would um, I'm usually not a big technical guy, man, but but I think he used the shadows and lighting, like you said, to base on their emotions and to draw um, their feelings through the, the use of shadows and lights. You know what I mean? And it's a black and white movie. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and I think that is what gives it the edge is like because it's black and white. It you can probably do a little bit more. More right. apparent of these shadow changes. Right. But, you know, um, Ted Turner wanted to colorize this. Oh, really? Right. And you know what Orson Welles, it's rumored that Orson Welles told him, he said, you can tell Ted Turner to keep his crowns away from my movie. <laughs> I thought that was the funniest thing I've ever That's ever fantastic. seen. Honestly, yeah. this, I wouldn't want to see this colorized. Like, I, think I mean, it's, it's... it would be interesting if you could, if you could get the right, I don't know, man. I, yeah. I just think it's perfectly shot. I don't think you can. I, I think so. There's because just... even, and we're going to stay here for just a second longer, but yeah. that, even the opening scene where you're watching, like, um, they're at that gate, and it fades up, you know, the no trespassing oh, sign, yeah, and yeah. it goes in there. And just the way it's shot, you know, you see that house in the back. Yep. And you see, you know, it, it keeps getting closer and closer, but there's different things happening in the forefront. Yep. You know what I mean? And then once you get inside the house, it's, it's like um, the play on the gl- snow globe and, yep. and all that. It's just it's so well done, and, and I loved it. So continue on. Sorry. Without, we're going down a lot of rabbit holes here, but might as well. You know, it's the greatest, one of the greatest movies of all time. We're going to take a little bit Absolutely. extra time on it. Absolutely. Um, so the film length was uh, 3,271.72 meters. So this film consisted of 13 reels. Uh, negative format was 35 millimeter. Uh, cinematographic process was spherical printed film format, 35 millimeters. And now off to the... Awards. Uh, we have the Academy Awards USA 1942. Um, winner of Best Writing Original Screenplay, uh, Herman J. M., because I'm not going to just butcher his name every time I bring him up. Uh, and then <laughs> Orson Welles. Um, and on uh, Friday, July uh, 19th, 2003, Orson Welles' Oscar uh, statue went on sale at an auction uh, somewhere. What does it sell for, do you know? I don't know where the somewhere is. <laughs> no, but I mean, do you know how much it sold for? Oh, no, no idea. Let me look. All right. Uh, then we have, uh, here's the nominations. So we're just going to, um, the two most notable ones was Best Actor in the Leading Role, Orson Welles, and Best Director, Orson Welles. So Orson Welles was the first uh, person to be both nominated for an Oscar for being both the leading role and also the director. Um and then he was the first one to uh, get the, you know, leading role, best director, and um, I'll rip up my paper, fall away, and uh, 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 best film, best. In uh, his Oscar sold for in uh, 2011, sold for. Oh, again in 2011. Well, it says uh, uh, sold for 861,542 dollars at wow. a California auction house. Wow. That'd be cool to have. I'm not going right. to lie. If anybody would like to send that to us for our 
podcast room. I'd for, greatly appreciate it. For the cost of Citizen Kane. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's hilarious. Uh, then uh, they were also nominated for uh, Best Cinematography, uh, Black and White. Uh, I feel like he should have won that. Um, mm-hmm. And that was Greg Tolan. But I also probably attributed to him not winning uh, due to the fact that uh, – uh, William Hurst. Randolph Hearst really yeah. had a big uh, sway in a lot of these stuff. Well, and they're all getting booed for it every time it's yeah. even mentioned. I was just like... Uh, best Art Direction and Interior Decoration, Black and White. Uh, they were nominated for Best Sound Recording, uh, Best Film Editing, and Best Music Scoring for a Dramatic Picture. Then we have the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films, USA 2012. They were nominated for the Saturn Award of Best DVD Blu-ray Special Edition Release, which was the uh, for the 70th Anniversary Ultimate Collector's Edition, um, which obviously included Citizen Kane. And I believe we've seen this exact same uh, 70th Anniversary Ultimate Collector's Edition in some other movies we've covered. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have the DVD Exclusive Awards in 2001. They won for Best Audio Commentary uh, by uh, Roger uh, Ebert. Um, then we have the National Board of Review, USA 1941. They won the NBR Award for uh, Best Film. Uh, they were in the Top 10 Films and Best Acting for uh, uh, with uh, George... Uh, uh, <laughs> Come on. <laughs> oh, man. Hooked on phonics worked for Terrence. <laughs> Hooked on phonics worked for me. Uh, best acting, Orson Welles. Uh, then we have the National Film Preservation Board, USA 1989. Uh, they won and then were initiated into the National Film Registry. Uh, New York Film Critics Circle Awards 1941. They won for Best Film and they were nominated for Best Director and Best Actor, both Orson Welles. Uh, Online Film and Television Association 1997 um, winner for... Motion, best Motion Picture. Uh, Online Film Critics Society Awards in 2002. They were nominated for Best Overall D- DVD. The Satellite Awards in 2011 uh, nominated for Best Classic DVD. Uh, once again, falling under the Ultimate Collector's Edition. Uh, Village Voice Film Poll 1999. They won Best Film of the Century. And that is all of the awards. Um... So lots of awards just over time, uh, just to show how like you know prevalent this film is. It's it's talked in film school today. You know, mm-hmm. it's up there with you know if you're if you're looking into plays, you're gonna read Shakespeare. If you talk about movies, you're talking about Citizen Kane. Mm-hmm. Very well done. Um, this is on like I said, it's on so many lists. It's it's the AFI. Number one movie of all time. I think Entertainment Weekly gave it the number two movie of all time. Um, it's on the thousand one movies you must see before you die. It's on Roger Ebert's list. Uh, it's yep. it's on every list, and I think everybody should at least watch it at least once, uh, if not for anything, Absolutely. just to appreciate it. Um, I'll probably go back and watch it again. I mean, it'd probably be a while, but I mean, I it's not a movie I hated. You know, oh, yeah, that's my third time watching it. Right, so it's it's really good. If you can get through that first ten minutes, stick with it. <laughs> yeah, I'm just absolutely. saying. Um, Oh, here's, here's a cool little fact that I wanted to throw out. Yeah, go ahead. Um, so Orson Welles, uh, when he started uh, film in general, he was 23 years old. He was 25 when he filmed Citizen Kane, and I just think that's crazy. Well, I'm glad you said that because we're going to do the cast now because Orson Welles, um, 
Charles Foskini is a wealthy newspaper publisher who the film's about. Uh, the film premiere in Chicago was on his 26th birthday on oh, May wow. 6, 1940. 26 years old, and he made this film. Right. He looked older in this movie, you know what I mean? For most of the movie. To be fair, everybody at that time looked older at their right, age. Right, but wow. <laughs> I mean, 26, Terrence, that's four years younger than you. Five years now, I guess. I don't know. Oh, by the way, happy birthday, Terrence. Terrence oh, had a yeah. birthday this week. So. It was like my birthday last weekend. Yeah. <laughs> Quarantine, baby. Um, so, but, but like it says, at the beginning of the film's ending credit states that most of the principal actors in Citizen Kane are new to motion pictures. Uh, the Mercury Theater is proud to introduce him, and the cast is listed as follows. You have Joseph Kahn as Jebediah Leland, and I think he did a really good job. Uh, that was Kane's best friend in the report of The Inquirer. Yeah. He, um, also, uh, is is it the same gentleman, or does someone else play him as, when he's older? I don't know if they did of make who? up. Or, Orson? Uh, Jeremiah. Um, we'll get to it. Gotcha. Uh, Dorothy Comingor as Susan Alexander Kane, which was his mistress and second wife. Yep. Uh, Agnes Moorhead. Do you know who Agnes Moorhead is? No. She played Mary Kane, which was his mom, but she was almost 40 when she did this, and she was in Bewitched. Oh, she played uh, Samantha's mom in Bewitched. That's crazy. If you've ever seen Bewitched, I don't know, you're a youngin'. Uh, do you know what Bewitched is? Yeah. What is it? Movie about witches. No, it's a TV show. <laughs> oh Look at this guy. Uh, I don't know how this podcast survived with, with this guy. Um, Ruth, Wa- sometimes. Yeah. Ruth Warwick was as Emily Monroe Norton Kane, which was his first wife. Uh, Ray Collins as uh, Getty, Jim Geddes, which was his political rival. Man, that guy was crazy. Oh, Crooked. yeah. Uh, we'll talk about that, though, later. Um, uh, Erskine Sanford as Herbert Carter, which was the editor of the Inquirer. Uh, Everett Sloan as Mr. Bernstein, which was Kane's friend and employee at the Inquirer. William Alland as Jerry Thompson, a reporter for the News of March. Uh, News on the March, sorry. Uh, Paul Stewart as Raymond, which was Kane's butler. George Caloris as Walter Parks Thatcher, a banker who becomes Kane's legal guardian. Fortunio Bonanavo, yeah, that guy. Uh, Sigor Matiste, a vocal coach of Susan Alexander King. That guy was funny, man. No, no, no. (laughs) (laughs) I loved him. Uh, Gus Schilling as John the head waiter. (laughs) No, no. uh, uh, (laughs) That was so funny. Uh, Gus Schilling as John head waiter at the El Rancho nightclub. Philip Van Zant as Mr. Ralston. Uh, Georgia Backus as Bertha Anderson attended at the library of Walter Park Thatcher. She was funny too. She's oh like, yeah. Um, and th- and I thought that was another great scene shot when he goes into that library and he goes into that big room. There's a big picture of Kane on the wall. Nothing else in this room. It's just a big, big room, a table, one chair, and they bring this <laughs> this diary of somebody that set it there. And she's like, "You can only look at pages forty one through seventy three or whatever." <laughs> yep. And you got it. What we close at four twenty-five or whatever you yeah. must be done. I was like, okay. I just, I just think it's funny how that scene ended. And they're like, uh, do you know anything about Rosebud? Like, no, no. All right. And then he just. Yeah, like, I know. <laughs> Did you find what you're looking for? No. Uh, let's see. Harry Shannon as Jim Kane, which uh, which was Kane's father. Sonny Bupp as Charles Foster Kane, the third Kane's son. Buddy Swan as Charles Foster Kane, age eight, and we talked about Orson Welles. Um, Additionally, Charles Bennett appears as the entertainer at the head of the chorus line in the Inquirer party scene. And cinematographer Greg Tolan made his cameo there at the News on the March Reel. Also, actor Alan Ladd makes a cameo appearance as a reporter smoking a pipe at the end of the film. So, hmm. all right, are we ready to die? This is, this, we're going to have a bunch of talking points here. Oh, so. yeah. 
I'm going to just um, let you fly through some of these because we spent like 40 minutes just Well, <laughs> Well, we had, you know, William Randolph first. He hated Orson Welles so much that, that he actually accused him of being a communist. Yeah, absolutely. And I was like, this this <laughs> rival is just going way out of way out of whack. Um, but they said that this film opening title, you know, with just the title, no names, nothing. They said this was almost unprecedented in 1941. Is now the normal for the industry of Hollywood, you know what I mean? Yeah. But this is like one of the first times it was ever done. And if you hear any thunder, it's, it's getting really stormed bad outside. Oh, so. yeah. Uh, <laughs> but 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 the the hatred between Hearst and Wells went. Uh, he Hearst was trying to basically and not get this made. We all know this. Yeah, absolutely. But the rumor is that he had arranged for a naked lady to be in Orson Welles' hotel room, so that when he opened the door, there was going to be a photographer there, and she was going to jump into his arm, and they were going to snap a picture and use it as a propaganda against him, so this movie oh, would wow. not get released. But unfortunately. Wells found out about it, so he, he spent the night elsewhere. So, but we don't know if that's true or not. So, yeah. um, you but know, this, this you a, haven't you haven't caught on yet. They uh, hate each William other. William Randolph Hearst was was a bit of a terrible person, right? But but also <laughs> he, uh, you can see, you know, what they say, uh, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, or whatever they yeah. say. So, I mean, I think that's one of these guys. Um, it's also very racist. They also <laughs> they also said that. Uh, uh, Orson Welles that he would he would yell at, at uh, his second wife you know just or he would just talk bad about her all on set just so they could get that emotional connection because he didn't have any feelings bad feelings toward her he eventually yeah. said you know but it was just he wanted to get into character and you know she hated him basically yeah um, sad news though but the original nitrate negatives are gone they were lost in a fire during the 1970s ah jeez ah uh, why is that man all this stuff is this like the second or third film that's that we've read that it's happened to right yeah I mean you, but back then you know but even a lot what was it um, who was it uh, what movie were we doing where somebody found like something in the trash can and took it home oh that was Creature of the Black League yeah yeah awesome. they, like after it was done filming they just tossed the costume yeah the <laughs> can you imagine Wow. Um, do you know the scene where um, it's towards the end of the movie where he gets mad and he goes in her room? She says she's leaving him or whatever, and he goes in yeah. that room and he just starts tearing it up and, yeah. and all that. Well, I mean, he cut his hand really bad. Uh, he did it all in one take. Oh, wow. Yeah, that um, was one take. He said, he said, I really felt it. And he just went nuts in there. You know what I mean? And I was like, um, <clears throat> the <laughs> uh, let's see. Yeah, he said um, he said that Marion Davis' reputation has suffered due to the popular misidentification with the character of Susan Allen Alexander. So on that scene that we were just talking about, you know, where yeah, yeah, after where she leaves. So there's this there's this uh, uh, particular shot where you know he passes by two mirrors and you, you get the um, the Dorset effect. That that's when you know there's two mirrors and it looks like infinite mirrors. Yeah, oh uh, yes, where he walks by. Great yes. shot. I just wanted to bring up uh, because he's not at, he never looks directly into the mirror. He's just he just walks by he it. He just walks by it. Yeah, and um, it, it's it's once again. Um, just filled with like you know messages and meanings uh, in these shots and everything done very on purpose right uh, Wells can say that he didn't um, didn't take this after Hearst but everything points to that you know <laughs> his life because I mean even his uh, Xanadu that's in the film yeah. it's actually based upon uh, Hearst's elaborate homes in uh, California and in France <laughs> you know um, and to show there's no hard feelings before Orson Welles died uh, Hearst's son said hey 
I have no hard feelings toward this guy. He's a welcome to my dad's estate anytime he wants. I thought that was really cool. Um, so, uh, so that's actually that comes as far as like Xanadu uh, comes in. It's like that. That's another big theme. Is like uh, he builds a lot of places, and I think they even directly address it in the film, which is like he builds a lot of stuff. Um, but nothing ever is ever finished. Nothing's ever finished. But but what I really liked is when he one of my favorite things of the movie is where um, he's like, guys, come with me. He gets his newspaper. And he's like, guys, come with me. And they go over to the opposing newspaper thing, right? Yeah. And it says population or uh, circulation eight hundred ninety five thousand, whatever. And it shows that picture of them. Hey guys, and then another great cinematography is it fades back, and then guys are. You know, it's not a picture anymore. It's actually oh, the guy's yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? And he and he he gets them all to come work for him within two years. Yep. And it's now the number one newspaper. I thought that was great. Um, Orson Welles' uh, personal 156 page uh, copy of the script sold for ninety seven thousand in two thousand seven. Yeah. So I mean, uh, in the scene where Jebediah confronts Kane. Uh, Joseph Cotton stayed awake for 24 hours before the suit showed to finish in order to start a play in New York. Oh, wow. He makes an error and says dramatic criminatism of blood that they left in the film. I thought that's funny, too. Um, I mean, it kind of worked out because, you know, the, uh, it was a very sort of like uh, emotionally driven, also just um, uh, like, you know, he just. You just got let go, you know what I mean? <laughs> or like, for, he, he was, that was right, right before he got like he got fired, right? Who? Oh, uh, who we're talking about? What? Je- Jeremiah. What about it? Jebediah oh, or Jebediah? What about him? Uh, right before he got fired, is that when he makes that little flub? That was, I don't know, man, but it was funny. <laughs> um, the uh, um, after production rap, William Randolph was so mad that he forbade any advertisement of the film in any of his newspapers. Oh, yeah. And the, the, none of his newspapers or any other RKO at all. Or any other RKO movies. He was so mad at the industry. He offered to buy the negatives from the studio head, George Schaefer, with a view of destroying them. Fortunately, Orson Welles had already previewed the film to influential industry figures to rave reviews, so it was granted a limited theatrical release. Critics from non-Hearst newspapers fell over themselves praising the film. The film itself was not reviewed in any Hearst newspapers until the mid-1970s when the film critic for Hearst Los Angeles Herald Examiner, Ray Loind, finally reviewed it. And that's a long grudge from 1941 to 1970. But, I mean, you see that. I hope they made up, man, because, you know, it's just a grudge. You get over it. I mean, if you didn't want your life to be in a biography, you shouldn't have done the stupid stuff you were doing. Right. But, um... And uh, this was the first film score of Bernard Herrmann, which we are know famous from Psycho. Yep. Um, so he would become one of Hitchcock's favorite people, uh, most famous composer for the Hitchcock films. Um, let's see. Yeah, there was that deep focus you talked about. So some of these notes I'm going to skip them because we've already talked about yeah. them. Um, oh, here you go. According to Ruth Warwick, Orson Welles was not in good shape at the beginning of this production. When principal photography began, Wells was suffering from the effects of caffeine poisoning as a result of consuming 30 to 40 cups of coffee a day. Wow. I mean, that's yeah, more I, than you, Terrence. It, it's, uh, uh, I've never heard of caffeine poisoning. I, I mean, I know you well, could, it's like, probably it was probably different back then than it is yeah, today. Yeah, that's but, true. So, but that's interesting. 30 to 40 cups of coffee a that's day. That's a lot of coffee. That's a lot of coffee. Um, 
Wells then switched to tea, figuring that the hassle of having to brew the beverage would naturally limit his intake. But Wells had someone on call to brew the tea for him, and within two weeks, Wells was the color of tannic acid. It was also reported that he would go for long periods of time without eating, then put away two or three large steaks with side items in one sitting. Wow. I was like, (laughs) and Orson Wells, he wasn't a small man. Oh, no, not at all. No, 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 no. He always was a little portly, if you will. Yeah. Um that we talked about the still photo already the pins <laughs> this is the one that i thought was pretty funny uh it says uh, when kane and his entrees are on the uh, set off for the beach of xanadu you see large birds flying in the background yeah um the fact was that the backgrounds was lifted from science fiction films uh to save costs and the birds are in fact pterodactyls <laughs> They say think that they were uh, from either King Kong from 1933 or Son of Kong from 1933. So it'd be interesting to find out which one of those. Oh, I know, right? It actually was. Oh, and by the way, um, I'll say this real quick. Uh, Marion Davis was rumored to have an affair with Charlie Chaplin. Um, so I think that's where some of this comes in. But um, there was going to be a scene in there where there was a he she gets caught or whatever with Charlie Chaplin or whatever. Huh. Um, there's a whole big story on that I'm not even going to read, so we can cut some of that out. Um, and here comes the rain. Oh, I know, right? It's about to get noisy. Yeah. So, uh, let's see here. Yeah, this, do you remember where they're celebrating and he, he's like, uh, they're having that feast or whatever. He's like, all right, bring them in. And the drummer's coming and then the chorus oh, girl's coming. Yeah, yeah. That was actually going to be set in a brothel. <laughs> but, oh, well, then. yeah. But he was, he was like, well, this is going to take, um, this is going to take away too much from the, what I'm trying to accomplish. Yeah, that would make sense. <laughs> kind of take away from the scene. Right. The element of the script that he wanted to do. Uh, Orson Welles chipped his ankle bone halfway through production, had to direct for two weeks from a wheelchair. When he was called to stand up on, uh, stand on screen, he wore metal braces. The injury occurred in the scene where Kane chases Getty down the stairs and Welles tripped. Do you remember when um, uh, he his first wife comes... Uh, they're oh, having a political. Right. Yeah. He's he's running for governor of New York, I think it is, and then they or Chicago, they one of the two, him, basically. Basically, well, she gets this note after his big speech, and they send their son home with another driver, and he she he she's comes like and talks to her. He's like she's like she's home. like come with me. He's like well, where are we going? She's like she gives him the address. He's like she's like you can. Yeah, she reads the address. She said, you see his you, eyes go wide. Yeah, he said you can come. Or you can't, or you don't or have you to. Stay. He's like, I'll he's come. Like, I'll come. So they get there, and when he gets there and he goes upstairs, uh, he knocks. They knock on the door, and she opens the door. She's like, Oh no, he was here. He was going to blackmail me, ruin my opera career, blah blah blah. And it's his political counterpart. So this scumbag, well, Kane's a scumbag for cheating, but what I'm saying, yeah, exactly. this, this scumbag is. He's like, look, he's like, he either drops out of the race, he's like, or I'm going to go to every other newspaper that he doesn't control, and I'm going to publish this, and it will be his downfall. Yeah. So his his wife gives him the ultimatum, basically. She's like, uh, well, what are you going to do? She says, I'm leaving. She said, you can either come with me, or you can stay. And yep. he says, I'm staying. So I was like, well, there, there went that. Here's a little uh, interesting little fact that, or tidbit, really, just to kind of bring to light, and that I thought was interesting. So um, what makes this interesting as far as storytelling this is told through the perspective of three different people and never through uh, uh, Charlie Kane's point of view because he's dead so you can't get his point of view so this is seen through the point of view of um, his old partner uh, his second wife and um, 
and the guy reading in the uh, the library in the library. So this is all read from three different point of views, and so uh, there's one sort of event that's glossed over, but that's because there's no one who would have emotional connection that to that event. But that would be um, his first wife and son die in a car crash. Mm-hmm. It's very glossed over. I think it's just a newspaper clipping, mm-hmm. and you know that that's a big impact event, but. I just thought it was interesting that it was sort of uh, skimmed over because it wasn't important to the three people in their perspective. Well, because so. the whole draw of this movie is they're making this movie, and the guy's like, well, this doesn't really tell – this tells us who Charlie King is, but it doesn't really tell us who the man was. Yeah. It tells us his accomplishments. And on his deathbed, he whispers Rosebud. And that's the last thing. Clamoring and they want to know what is. is. They don't know if it's another lady. They don't know if it's an object. They don't, they don't know, know what it is. Dog. Like they don't know. Actually, know. So do you know? Technically, Rosebud was named after a childhood friend's dog, and yep. he always around sniffing himself. That's where he came up with the name <laughs> Rosebud. And he was just fascinated. But um, we talked about that. Um, Herman uh, J. Mankiewicz. Uh, was contractually bound not to drink during the film's pre-production. Mankiewicz was a known alcoholic at the time. To help him, Orson Welles dispatched him out of Hollywood to the desert town of Victorville, where drinking establishments were in shorter supply. Oh, wow. He also had uh, John Houseman follow him around make sure he didn't drink. So, um, This was the original uh, uh, George Schaefer, who was the head of RKO, uh, wanted uh, suggested the title change from it was originally American, to yeah. Citizen Kane, but Orson Welles wanted to call the film John Q. Huh. Which I love that movie with Denzel Washington. So, so speaking of um like like uh cast and, and, and crew, that was another thing that uh William Randolph Hearst um would would accuse Orson Welles of is uh he's hiring refugees and people not from this country. He's not hiring American. Like that was another thing right. that he tried to smear Orson Welles' name. Oh, th- <laughs> just to give you an you idea know, of the kinda, kind of man this was. After watching this, I kind of want to read a biography on Orson Welles because he seems like he. Because if um, you may not know this, but he was the one that did the War of the Worlds radio drama Absolutely. in 1941, and every and thought the world was, was so getting convincing. attacked by UFOs. Yeah, exactly. It was so, so convincing that everybody thought it was real. I hope somebody's done a good biography. I'm going to look this up when we're done because I'd like to read it. I think it'd be fascinating. Absolutely. This guy is a fascinating character. Well, what I think is what. what, what uh, is unfortunate about Orson Welles is uh, this is his peak right here, Citizen Kane. This is his best work. Um, and then af- everything after, he's more or less well-known for the movies he couldn't get mm-hmm. uh, 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 worked out. And uh, I wonder if that's because of... All right, guys, we are back. We just lost. We thought we just lost this whole recording, and we were like panicking because the computer shut down. And I was like, "Oh no, we're not going to do this whole thing again, man." We luckily we caught it right there, so we're going to continue. So I was saying, "So ready to walk." Terrence, yeah, Terrence was freaking out. So basically, Terrence was saying that uh, he couldn't get any other things after this. This was his peak. And my point was, well, maybe this was because her still had control over a lot of the other. Company is influential, and I think that's probably why. And so, just influence on, on, on news and what people were consuming, yeah. Right. Um, terrible, terrible person. Do you remember where, um, since Orson Welles broke his ankle, um, the first f- scene of this movie that was filmed was uh, Jebediah Leland in the wheelchair at the, the nursing home or whatever. Remember, he's like, yeah. you got you to smoke. <laughs> oh, yeah. But he, he shot it, Make and he had, he had a wig on. 
And the first thing had a wig, but the people with the wig, they couldn't keep the wig on because they were new to wigs. And yeah. they had to reshoot it. And he, that's when he got that stupid sun visor on, which sets it off, man. You know what I mean? Yeah. But, but all he wanted was a cigarette, remember? It was um, a cigar. Yeah. He was like, he's like, give me some cigars. He, he was supposed to do the scene with cue cards, but the contact lenses were dipped in milk. Oh, wow. Okay. To give him that crazy look. And the wig wouldn't stay on, so... <laughs> He, learned, he took a couple hours to make sure he memorized his lines and everything, yeah. which is cool because it kind of seemed like a normal interview. You know what it I mean? Did. Yeah. So that, that's another draw for this. Um, and just for a second, we got to talk about his mom and dad because, man, his mom, his dad yeah. loved him. You could tell. His dad's like, I don't want to send him. What if I want to raise my own son? I don't. I really never understood why he was leaving. I didn't either. I. Didn't it was just like this guy comes and he's like, hey, I'm going to take him and he's going to go live. And I was like. Why? Why? But his mom's, his dad's like, but what if I want to raise him? She's like, it's best for him. He's going to get 50, you're going to get 50. Was it him getting 50,000 a week or they were something? something. There was something about yeah. money. And then his mom, his mom's like, well, he's like, can we at least, uh, can you, you better go pack his bag. She's like, I already packed them. They were packed last night. And I was like, jeez, man, she just wanted to get rid of this kid. Where's the love for the kid? Um, and you could tell he didn't want to leave. He loved his mom. He's like, Mom, you coming? Because oh, yeah, his dad's yeah. like, you're going to go see Chicago. You're going to go see New York. He's you're going to like, you're be famous people. You know, he's trying to. And, and he's like, you coming, Mom? She's like, no, Charlie. You're going to go live with this guy now. And you could tell. They start showing him at Christmas time. He's mad. You know, he gets a new sled. Um, he's just like. Does, doesn't he hit him with the sled, too? Uh, no, he tackles him, remember? Yeah. He tackles <laughs> the guy in the snow. Um, let's see here. Which spoiler alert? Yeah. Sled is rosebud. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what's funny is um, in nineteen, uh, I forget what it is. I got it in here somewhere, but uh, this uh, Jim Schultz, the creator of Peanuts, yeah. or Charles Schultz, sorry, uh, the creator of Peanuts, he actually spoiled it in the in the cartoons because um, <laughs> they said, hey, you know, they were talking about rosebud, and then somebody said it's the sled at the end. So also, uh, Orson Welles had to make uh, special contact lenses that the doctors, the doctor was employed to put them into his eyes. Oh, wow. Uh, he had difficulty clearly seeing for him. That's why he was cut so badly in that scene where he breaks up the furniture in, yeah. in that room. And that's why he cut his hands. But that's probably why he did it in one take. So I find this unique because that's still an issue that we have in today's film is they'll do a scene where they have to wear like a special kind of contact lenses and you, you'll just hear like, yeah, they can't see. It was so terribly irritating because of these special contact lenses. So it just seems like this constant issue. And that can't be good for you dipping them in milk and wearing them for that length. Yeah, that is, I haven't heard the milk thing before. I had either. That, but, I, I do know that. But you like, know, he looked kind of weird. It was oh, yeah, perfectly done. I, but uh, his character was great. You know the sled that was given to Charlie from Thatcher? Thatcher was that guy's name yeah. uh, for Christmas. And he looks at it and he's just like mad. Well, the name on that one was the Crusader. It wasn't a rosebud. So I don't know if that was a type of sled, you know, yeah. a name brand sled or something. So that's why he looked kind of mad the entire time. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, Orson Welles gave an example to the movie industry with this film with there's no need of preparation. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, learned a bunch, a bunch of techniques by... Uh, looking up uh, for the main characters and point characters down on secondary ones. Uh, he said that he watched Stagecoach a lot, the John Wayne's first movie. Uh, he watched Wait, almost movie. 40 times while this was during this production. Oh, wow. He watched it 40 times. Uh, so I, I guess, you know, whenever we get to that, we should see, like, if there's any sort of right. comparisons or, or, like, ideas that he pulled from that movie. Right. Uh, 
it says that the uh, unnecessary purpose cost Wells his career, all according to director Robert Wise, who edited this film uh, and the Magnificent Ambersons in 1940, also from us. Simply after that magnificent start, he never took advantage of his talents. It was his fault, his lack of discipline. Hmm. So, but uh, Orson Welles came to this. He's just, he's just so young. You right. Know what I mean? Uh, Orson Welles came to this like the Rosebud Twist, calling it a dollar book fruit. <laughs> I was like, uh, let's see. Oh, do you remember? This is, I thought this was funny. Um, as of 2017, do you do you remember the scene where um, where she's she's like you're gonna be the greatest opera singer of all time? She's like he's like I'm gonna build you an opera. House. So he builds an opera house yeah, for his wife. He just builds his opera house, house yeah. right? And they're all in that they're all in the theater, and the people are like, uh, you know, like yeah. Uh, the the director's down there in the body, you know, the opera coach is down there. He's like up up higher, you know, and uh, people are laughing and talking and you know, but then they give start clapping. And then he stands up and he just starts that ridiculous clap. Yeah, to the clap. It's played at the Washington uh, Nationals baseball team when they want the fans to clap. They'll show him up there and start clapping. I thought that's, that's weird. So, so here's what's interesting about that scene, and this is more of like a. Uh a recent pop culture reference. So, I mean, everybody knows what memes are and GIF images, and that's a constant GIF image that's used, which is uh, uh, Charlie Kane standing up and clapping in almost a sarcastic manner. And uh, uh, the way people use it is so opposite of how he actually felt in that scene. But you know what? And, and, and here's the thing about that, because he goes back to his newspaper and his partner or whatever is in there writing a review about that performance and it's as a terrible performance. And oh, the guy yeah. had fallen asleep or passed out from drinking, remember? Yeah. And he's like, I'll take this. And he goes out there and he's writing a bad review about his wife's performance. Yeah. I was like, wow. So on one hand, he's standing up giving a standing ovation. The other one, he's writing down, you know, <laughs> and like putting all the feelings he wanted to say in there. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Um, Mankiewicz wrote the balance of the screenplay from the film from a hospital bed recovering from an illness that he had. Um, so I wonder if it was alcohol related <laughs> poison. Yeah, it could be, uh, Orson Welles or, uh, Orson Welles was himself a uh, magician, an amateur magician. That's huh. why when he's doing them tricks for his second wife, yeah, yeah. um, this was the favorite film of Charlton Heston. Uh, he would later collaborate with Orson Welles on touch of evil in 1958. Hmm. Uh, this is also your president Donald Trump's favorite movie. Which, Which he's kind of... He mentioned... Uh, it kind of... Orson... It kind of... <laughs> the, it's like a biography. The parallels are there. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, he, he stated that uh, like long time ago. Like pre-him oh, yeah, Home Alone. Oh yeah, it's it's a long like, time ago. He like, said this that this was a long time ago. Uh, and like he gets like the baseline of sort of the movie. And that was like... Uh, he's like, oh yeah, I like the whole point of the movie is that uh, you... You, money can't buy you happiness kind of thing. And I'm like, yeah, that's that's the very, 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 very surface level of the movie, <laughs> so you're not wrong, but there's a lot more deeper things going on in the movie. But yeah, right. no, it's, it's, it's uh, We talked about the wig. Um, talked about Donald Trump. Let's see here. Um, gosh, his hand. You talked about that during that. Um, the film is frequently... Cited as the best film of all time, but it wasn't immediately received as such upon release in 1941. Its profile was raised significantly in 1962 when Sight and Sound's decennial all-time film poll placed it at number one. Hmm. A position it held in 1972, 82, 92, 2002, being knocked down to number two by Hitchcock's Vertigo in 2012. 
Which we have covered. We did. Great movie. <laughs> um, the superstar Marion Davis, which was technically based upon her part, uh, yeah. Susan Alexander, in this, uh, in her memoir, The Times We Had, which she recorded in 1951, that she never saw the film and that she had no anger towards Orson Welles. So I thought, yeah. how can you, well, if you ain't seen it, you're not going to be angry. I mean, like I said, I, th- I think the whole sort of him trying to make the connection to Susan and or Susie and the movie and herself, it, it wasn't there because, like I said, uh, in the in the movie, she she didn't want to sing, she was forced to sing, and uh, she wasn't good at it and everything. Whereas in, um, uh, is it Marion Davis, the real one? Uh, yeah. yeah, exactly. So she she was a successful actress. Um, and she was just good at what she did. So, like, really, there wasn't there wasn't a comparison between the two, except the fact that, oh, hey, this uh, you know powerful guy had a mistress. Only connection, but I, I think it's a stretch to say that she's a direct jab at her. Right. So I think it was more at her than anybody. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. In March 1967, in a Playboy interview, Orson Welles stated that I've known only one great cameraman, Greg Toland, who photographed Susan Kane. He said he could teach me everything about the camera in four hours. And he did it. So I thought that was pretty that good. Is um, he was so sa- uh, Wells was so satisfied with this guy that he did for the Spanish dub version that uh, he requested the dubbing um, director Salvador Arias would appear in the Spanish version credits. Oh, so I thought cool. that I thought that was really cool. Um, and last but not least, in an interview book, this is Orson Wells with uh, Peter Bogdanovich and Orson Wells. Bogdanovich informs Wells that Steven Spielberg, yes, that's Steven Spielberg. Then a young director bought the rosebud sled from Citizen Kane, and Orson, confused, confessed to Peter that he thought that they had burned the sled. So he, he's like, "I thought we burned them. You probably burned several." The end scene. Yeah, that's that's hilarious. All right, Terrence, uh, give me your thoughts on this movie. Give me your opinions. Give me what you think rosebud means. Let's let's hear it. Hear it. Give it to me. So okay, so there, there's a lot of things going on in this movie. Um, there are many different uh, uh, sort of things you can pull from this of, as far as what it's what it's about. Uh, some there's a lot of arguments between all the different things it could be about. One of them being, is it about a loss of childhood? Is it about memory? Is it about uh, uh, complications of money and wealth? Um, and then uh, I actually I actually pulled this expert from some, someone who uh, I don't want to know theirs. I want to know yours. I, I thought it was really interesting. Oh, okay. So uh, it says, uh, but you have to admit the film goes all in on the idea of loss of childhood. Uh, Kane drowns his feelings in material objects and tries to live vicariously through Susan Alexander's youth, telling her where going we were going to be a great opera star. So. Uh, I just thought it was, that was a, that was a pretty unique thing when I was looking up, uh, you know, kind of um, comparing my own ideas to how other people felt about the movie, and uh, I, I think that's one aspect that makes it unique is you can pull all kinds of different ideas, and nobody's particularly wrong. Uh, uh, so I, I think it's one of those movies is uh, it, it's kind of you you take away what you interpret, and there's really no wrong answer to it. Mm-hmm. Um, now I, I I couldn't find anything from uh, Orson Welles him just putting out black and white. Oh, this is about this, um, but I think that's on purpose. Uh, if it is out there, let me know. Um, but as far as I know, he never came out and been like this is what everything means. Um, I think it's more to be open to interpretation, and uh, you know that's another very unique thing for this movie. Um, 
well well told story of amazing amazing cinematography uh amazing lighting just everything technical about this movie was groundbreaking for the time and uh, uh it's one thing that i've i've talked about before i'll every time this movie comes up i always talk about it um and it's a good movie for at least a definitely a one-time watch absolutely should be at least watched one time mm-hmm. i mean it it is more most commonly known as the greatest of all time um now I think that that in itself is a very subjective statement. Obviously, uh, I think we just, as humans, we just have this obsession of trying to pull the greatest thing of all time for anything. Um, but is it a great movie? Yes. Is it the greatest thing of all time? Debatable. Could for some, probably for others, uh, who knows? Um, now I, I am curious in, uh, to hear sort of your take on it because I have seen this movie twice before. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen it uh, on my own and I've seen it in a film class. Um, this is your first time mm-hmm. seeing it. Uh, so um, after knowing my thoughts which is definitely check it out at least once, what are your thoughts on the movie? All right. So like I told you, if you can get past those first 10 minutes, because I was like, this has got to be the best movie of all time for a reason. Yeah. Um, and so I started investing myself in Kane because I was like, because they're, they're, they're going by decades. They're showing when he's a little boy. They're showing what happened to him at an early age, transformed, moving, taken away from his parents, uh, taken away. He doesn't know why, um, but but all you know is he's rich. Yeah. Um, and uh, it, it shows him how he's a young businessman. He makes those uh, decisions, and it keeps going, and he wants to be the best at what he does every step he goes away. And money's no object. Because there's a scene, if you remember, oh, yeah. the scene that I love, and he's like, you're costing this one million, uh, th- you've lost a million this year. He's like, I could use a million for the next 60 years and st- yep. still not spend it all. <laughs> and I was like, that's my man. But here's 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 my take from it. I think the significance, significance of Rose, but obviously we all know it's his sled name. It, at the end, when it's burning in the fire, where they're throwing all this stuff away, it's burning in the fire and it burns back and it says Rosebud on his yeah. sled. To me... Here's what I think. I, I dug deeper. I thought, um, first of all, let me say this before I say think what my deep dive. I think the snow globe plays an integral part of this movie because that is of his childhood home, and you shake it in the snow, and that's where he was last with his family. Yeah, you see that at the be- you know when he at the beginning when he dies, you see that um, several other times in the movie when he goes to destroy. And he destroys that room. He reaches down and he picks up that globe and he looks at it. And that's when it stops his anger. Yeah. And he walks away with that. You know, he doesn't, all the people are standing outside the room and he just walks away with it. Yep. So to me, um, I looked up, what is a rosebud? I wanted, you know, I was like, Let, let's see what a rosebud is. A rosebud is basically an unopened flower of a rose. Yeah. Okay. So I started thinking, okay, a rose. A rose is a beautiful flower. Okay. But what else is on a rose? Thorns. Okay. So I'm thinking rosebud is, yes, I was this innocent child, you know, with so much potential. And I came through all these trials and tribulation in my life, which would have been the thorns of the thing, and then come out on top of a beautiful life. You know what I'm saying? So I think rosebud, not just as a sled, but if I want to take a deeper look at what a rosebud actually was and how a rose grows, that a rose needs, my grandma grew and it takes a lot of work to get them things. It takes a lot of caring, nurturing, watering, feeding, sunlight, uh, 
uh, pruning soils and soils yeah. and all that. And I think you can see that in his life, like the soil is different, the the trimming is different. You know, um, where he goes from losing his first marriage, his wife, you, you know, his dedication to his jobs, another layer. His second wife, his failed second marriage, you know, his son dying in a car accident, him taken from his parents, and I think it all started right there. And I think that's when it started to uh, maybe the rose started to get choked, choked through the thorns. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I think, he, I think at the end of the movie, if he's like, if I wouldn't have had all these problems, and I can go back to the time when I was a rosebud, maybe I'd have to do things differently yeah. to have to be better. Do you, you see what I'm all, saying? Oh yeah, absolutely. You could also say that it it could potentially have been his last like true happy moment where like it, it was right when he right, was a kid. When he was a kid with his family, just enjoying his time on his sled. Uh, you know, right before Christmas, before um, getting taken away, basically, and then growing up to be a man immediately, uh, you know, to be this entrepreneur. Doesn't he say something to the effect, though, that um, I think it's at the end of the movie where he says, if I could go back and do it all over again, I wouldn't change anything. Doesn't he say something like that? I don't know. Or he says something catch. about with his parents or something. Um, and what I, something else I didn't understand is how come when he got older... That he didn't try to find his parents. I don't know. Do you know what I mean? That's yeah. something that drove me crazy. He never because, does. But once again, I think it's because, once again, we're looking in the perspective of three different people. We're not looking in the perspective right, of Right, right, right. But I'm just saying, I think that would have been an extra added thing to this movie. Like, yeah. if he found out his parents were dead, or one of them was still alive, or, or why his mom was the way she was in this movie. That, yeah. that, that drove me crazy. Because she just gets up and she starts looking out the window. And her, her expression is just like... They've already been packed since last night. Like, yeah. like not a care in the world. Yeah. But I think that's what rosebud is. Well, to me, it was. You know, I mean, because right. I looked at the 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 what a rosebud is to to the snow globe. And to I think his that could once again be. I don't know. To like a lot. I thought it was a great. Analysis. I thought it was yeah. a great opinion. You no, know what no, I mean? No, no, it is. It is. <laughs> uh, like I said, I think you can wrap that up into the. Uh, you know, it was his last happy moment. It's sort of his last like true innocent child memory uh, uh, before uh, he he's you know groomed into uh sort of the the man he he stood right because he grabs that snow globe and right then his anger is gone yeah and you just see him open the door and all the people are just staring at him and he just he walks straight out and he takes a i I think he takes a right yeah and that's that's it that's all he says yeah Yeah, i was like wow so there you have it there is our citizen kane sorry it was a little longer we thought we were gonna have to re-record this terrence terrence (laughs) tart sank uh but luckily the computer called it just in time right um so, um, if you haven't uh, followed us on social media, uh, the Tragedy of Cinema podcast group on Facebook, uh, the Tragedy of Cinema at gmail.com. Uh, if you want to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Please Spotify. Do. Have we checked that? Uh, have new ones? I think last I checked, there was nothing new. Please yeah, I don't leave think... us some reviews. We love reading them, uh, they're fun. They're we'll read them on the air. Yeah. Um, if you'd like to come on the show, uh, hit me up on either Facebook Messenger or the Tragedy of Cinema podcast at gmail.com. Um, but next week. Um, we have done uh, several of these older movies. Uh, we are going to go back and enjoy one that I think we'll both have a lot of fun talking about. Uh, we tossed about a couple ideas, but I think next week, this was also one that was requested a long time ago. Uh, we are going to do um, Raiders of the Lost Ark. So yeah. we're going into the Indiana Jones realm. So stay tuned for that. But I think this episode has come to a close. Um, <laughs> but definitely, this is a great movie. Yeah, um, if definitely. you haven't seen it, um, I know I talked to one guy last night, Eric, who's been on the, the podcast. Yep. He has never seen it. It's like, isn't it like three hours long? I was like, no, it's only two hours. Um, if you get past the first 10 minutes, it's a so fantastic movie. Yeah. yeah. And then once you get done with the movie and you're sitting there thinking about everything you just saw, I mean, there was scenes in there that, that were shot that I was like, 
why, why don't we have this kind of cinematography today? Absolutely. Um, and that's another thing. If if you've listened to this podcast and you haven't watched it yet, I think coming in with that, you know, looking for those awesome technical things or coming with that in mind might even enhance your experience in watching the movie and may even want to uh, uh, like make you watch it and be like, oh, you know what? I don't know all this cool stuff about it cinematography wise and technical wise. Let me go check it out. And you know what else? If you want to send in us what you think Rosebud is, we'll read them on the air. We'll yeah. see. We'll see. We'll see what your theories are. Um, I like mine. <laughs> I thought it was pretty well done, uh, but uh, I think it was really well done. And I give Orson Welles a lot of props. But that's enough of this episode. We're going way past time. <laughs> so we on? we're like an hour an fifteen hour? already or something. Wow. So, um, well, with that being said, that's a wrap on this episode and, and cut. cut.